This episode is brought to you by FX's The Bear. The hit series returns with Jeremy Allen White in the Golden Globe-winning role of Carmi. He and the team will transform their family sandwich shop into a next-level spot, all while being forced to come together in new ways as they confront their past and reckon with who they want to be in the future. FX is The Bear. All episodes now streaming only on Hulu. This episode is brought to you by Certified Piedmontese Beef. Listen up, foodies. Make your next meal even better with real Nebraska beef. They have healthy, tender, delicious Italian heritage beef, grass-fed and sustainably raised on lush pastures in the Midwest. You can even create your own personally curated meat box that's shipped right to your door. To get two free steaks with any purchase over $50, use the code FREEBEEF at checkout. Learn more and shop exclusively at cpbeef.com. Hello and welcome to One for the Road with me, Sober Dave. Each week I'll be talking to some incredible guests and I hope by hearing each episode they will offer you a valuable source of inspiration and insight. From incredible life stories to a variety of important subjects, all to help you with your quest to change your relationship with alcohol. All of my guests are at different points in their journeys and each of them have powerful and uplifting stories and information to share. I hope you enjoy the show. Don't forget to subscribe and of course, leave a review. My guest today on One for the Road is Gemma Rose Barnes. Gemma, who appeared on Married at First Sight, realised she was struggling with alcohol much longer than she previously thought and is now enjoying a fabulous three months of sobriety. I really enjoyed this episode, and it was so refreshing to hear someone speak so openly about their early days of sobriety. Please don't forget to subscribe and hit the follow button, and if you get time, please leave a review. Good morning, Gemma. Welcome to my podcast, One for the Row. It's a real joy having you on today. Most people know you from uh, appearing on Married at First Sight. And recently, you did a reel explaining where you were with your addiction to alcohol. And it was really powerful, actually. And um, it really moved me and loads of your followers as well. And I noticed that there were a lot of press articles and that. So I thought it'd be really good to touch on that. But as my listeners know, these are life stories. So it's always good to wind it back, if you don't mind, to where you were a little girl growing up, where you grew up and what it was like for you as a child. So um, I I now live in uh, Newton Abbott. I grew up actually in Exmouth, which is a seaside town in Devon, which is a cul-de-sac town. There's nothing around it. You'd have to drive out of it to get to anywhere else. Um, I grew up with my biological mum, who I don't have a relationship with anymore, but we'll get to that. Um, I grew up with a mum who had children from 17, married at 16. She had children, three, with a Royal Marine, who's my father. And obviously in his travels around the world and not being home very often, he had multiple affairs. It was very abusive, very, it was a lot of domestic violence, which led to her not bonding with her children. Um, she was in a psychiatric ward, to my understanding, once that I know of, it, it could be a couple of times, but she did explain to me when I had my son on the brief time that I did see her, that she didn't bond with her children. She didn't, that's why she was the way that she was with us growing up. And it was a very difficult upbringing. Uh, and now that I'm 32 and I have children of my own, I feel a lot of sympathy to her. I feel I feel sorry for her that she didn't have the relationship that I have with my children and, and how lucky I am to have that. Um, and, we, you know, we have to have a thought for why people are the way they are. That's something that I'm facing with addiction is why am I the way that I am and why am I an addict? She um, She had these three children. My dad left and we didn't see him again. Um, he was present in, our, in my life until, from my memory, about five or six. And later, when I did contact him, it turns out he's been married four times, due to being married to wife number five. Um, so, you know, the the setups that I had in my life, these relationships to look to, when 
they weren't normal. Not that what is normal now, but there, there wasn't anything to like look up to. Um, my, my mother, after he left, met somebody and was married within a few months. The marriage only lasted a few months. Um, and she had her fourth child, which she brought up my sister on her own as well. So she had four children. And I'm pretty sure that was by the age of about 23. She had four children on her own and she juggled jobs and she did quite well, but she just didn't know how to be around children. She was aggressive, short tempered. There was a lot of emotional abuse, which later led to some physical, um, but it was different back then. The laws didn't stop you from hitting your children. I can remember very clearly because by this stage, my, my biological mum had met my stepdad, who was a police officer. I can remember him saying, make sure you hit them somewhere they can't see the bruises because it was in the, it become, a, and it was different back then. So, mm. you know, we have to make allowances in our, in, in the fact that what their knowledge was growing up. Um, and also how times have changed and suddenly what was normal wasn't now normal. And, you know, I always remember the fear of getting smacked or, um, getting a whack, but, you know, alcohol never really seemed to be a, problem around us in our younger childhood I can't really remember apart from your auntie getting a bit too pissed at a barbecue I can't really remember there being that much alcohol but that changed as the years progressed with her mental health how did that leave you um feeling growing up though that your emotional needs weren't really being met were they I can remember just being very anxious I didn't understand I was I was claustrophobic as a child and obviously as you're an adult and you start to learn words for things and what symptoms are and stuff like that you go oh that's me um I can remember being really scared in like people's bathrooms for instance being really boxed in and feeling terrified or like in a lift and like stuff like that like I was really really claustrophobic and anxious but I was also anxious and my tactic when I would be going home as like a little bit of an older child would be to make myself as anxious as possible. So when I went home, if everything was all right, the come down on the anxiety, which I suppose was my first drug, the come down of the anxiety was like a hit, like relief. Um, and yeah, that that just became like, I can remember her saying, all she ever wants is a cuddle to my gran. And like, they weren't emotional people. And that being like, a criticism whereas I, I kind of put my dad one of the memories I did have of him on a pedestal because he was very emotional he was very cuddly he always called me princess I can remember being like always sat on his lap so I put him way up there because how do you forget those feelings for someone when they're not around anymore and you've only got very young childhood memories so um it was difficult I always craved like a certain amount of love and affection um, like most people do, but um, this was this was it became toxic because this is like built into you as a child. You don't get this rejection as a child. Normally, your parents are quite. I, I honestly relate to that, uh, and I've talked about it on my podcast in my book about my childhood. On paper, looked quite normal, but I didn't get the cuddles. I didn't get the um, come here gives a hug I'm so proud of you I didn't get the I really love you Dave right and it left me feeling insecure um and when I did start drinking it it was a feeling of being accepted wanted and I'm sure that comes from me growing up as a child seeking that sort of validation that I'm all right is that how you felt completely like suddenly when alcohol came in like, I can remember, first of all, alcohol was like, I can remember my parents pouring a, a gin and lemonade and being like, the lemonade's flat. And I'd be there like, fuck, it's because the gin's like 90% water. Oh, yeah, <laughs> yeah. Um, but like, I can remember them leaving the room and me having a, a massive swig of Guinness. I was just always curious. Um, and then it developed into my stepdad collected wine and he would have like six boxes from the Tesco wine club. And I'd cut a hole in the bottom of the box with my brother. We'd steal a bottle of Malbec and take it down the down the um, park or down the beach. But I can just remember like suddenly you're having a wild fun time with people, friends that felt like they loved you. Yeah. So, you know, you, you already your foundations of your relationship with alcohol. You don't realise as you get older how 
actually toxic that can be as you get older. That's that's your that's your first layer of your experience of alcohol. Yeah, you don't understand it as well, and and it's like the magic pill, isn't it? It solves all your anxieties and you know fixes so many things instantly. And I remember like when I was at the shops with these lads. Um, and they thought I was really funny. And I said before, I wasn't a fighter. I was like a lover and the funny comedian one. And I used to go home thinking, yeah, I'm all right. I am right. And that was 14 years old. And it kind of took me until then to think I was all right. But then it manifests on from that. It changes, doesn't it? Like any other relationships. So how, how old were you when you first started drinking and how old were you when you kind of realized it was a bit of a problem um I was about I'd say about five or six when I started taking those first like sneaky sips of drinks when your parents would leave the room but um I suppose now looking back realizing that it was a problem I'd probably say about 14 or 15 you know like telling your mum you're at Claire's house and Claire telling her mum you're she's at your house and actually being at a pub because back then it was it was eighteen, but you could be like it was still eighteen, but you could be you smoked in the pubs and you could sort of look a bit older by smoking. You know, um, I grew up in a town where it was a university was there. It's not anymore, but uh, there was a lot of also young looking people, so you could blend in. But I'd be down the pub playing pool with my friend, drinking at like fourteen, fifteen. Um, and once you become a regular and people recognise you, no one questions it. I can remember on my 18th birthday getting banned from all the pubs because I've been drinking there for four years. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. I mean, I didn't realise that was still like that because, like, I I was 14 when I was going in pubs, but that was back in 1978, 1980, you know, where you just didn't need ID or anything, you know. You just go, but so 14, 15... And you started to think it was a problem. It shocked me when you said you were five or six when you took the first drink. I mean, I thought I started early. They'd be like leaving the room, but it wasn't. It wasn't like down and drinks for the. It'd be like tasting them, testing what they're like. Yeah, being seeing curious. what it being, exploring what it is. Yeah, but I can remember having a sip of Guinness and be like, "Ugh, I'll never like that." But then they, then I'd, I'd try it again and be like, "Sort of like that." <laughs> So what happened then when you first started realising it was an issue? Did you did you just carry on? So um, it, it kind of like it wasn't, it wasn't. I became like a binge drinker, which now I'm older, I know that that also is it's unhealthy. Uh, and, and you're laying the foundations down for, you know, a problem that could evolve into daily life by binge drinking. So um, it became like every weekend I was living for the weekend going out with friends um but it would be like drinking till you're paralytic it wouldn't be drinking and like going home or going for cocktails with friends it became getting as drunk as you can and everyone was like that we had um I met my first boyfriend and all of his friends drank Stella and they'd all get as drunk as they could and we all did we all have barbecues have a fire in the garden and but yeah it would be mayhem it was chaos but yeah, that was probably like when strong alcohol started being um, introduced. You know, but there'd been times where people had drank vodka down the park, but between 12 of you, there's not much damage that can be done. This is getting different. We're in, friend, we're in friends' parents' houses with unlimited amount of spirits that the parents didn't really care for. So It's interesting what you say about, you know, you go on to stronger spirits, a stronger percentage. That I did. I would, I would drink like back in the day, like Castle Main and Foster's. And then... That wouldn't do anything. I'll drink four or five. So I would order the Stella. And and that's the, the where it begins to change, isn't it? That your tolerance changes and you begin to drink more of the stronger brands. And like I used to, with the wine, I always used to look for the Australian because the, you knew that'd be 13, 14%. Same. I just think you start like, it's the chase and the dragon, but we're from a young age of, chasing like wanting to get because you'd like you said your tolerance so you're seeing what's out there that's a bit better that's going to get a better result all right so that started happening were you experienced rock bottoms from your blowouts at the weekends so um i would say at that age no i bounced back quite quickly but it became a tool that i used if you know you had a good day or you had a bad day it was let's celebrate or let's 
cry over a drink. Um, and and I think it was so sociably acceptable in my area that everyone was drinking because we had the beach, we had the sand dunes, um, and everyone would be down there and there would be like, it, it was a, a pack mentality of like showing off and, um, you know, people nicking alcohol from their parents' house. So, but it never felt like a problem. It felt like what everyone else was doing. But as we know, some people can shake it off and have a good relationship with alcohol. And I imagine part of that was boredom. If if you say you lived in a cul-de-sac town and, and you know, you go to the beach because there's nothing else to do, right? There was nothing else to do. And also, you know, your parents would be like, yeah, yeah, go out. If you say things up and go to the beach, you knew what to say to get around your parents and to not look so suspicious. So, you know, having all this, in their opinion, at their age, natural beauty around, you know, you're using that and taking advantage of it and using it as a social setting and as a way to get up to mischief. So moving into your 20s, right, because you're only 32. Yeah. So I think it's really brave what you're doing and you're really articulate around your sobriety. And I can tell by what you said on that reel and how you put yourself out that it's really important to you. How did it begin to change in your life that you began to question your relationship with alcohol? I, I, I went through all of these traumatic experiences um, in my in my late teens or in my early teens. I um, I moved out of my mum's house when I was 15 and I moved into my, my boyfriend's house. His parents didn't know I lived there for a long, long time. Um, and, you know, and he clashed with his parents. So we moved into a house share. Um, and alcohol wasn't really a problem, but he had an accident and he passed away. Um, and I ended up going into um, a, a temporary accommodation homeless hostel. And um, for the first time in my life, uh, I was surrounded by addicts. There was someone that was an alcoholic who had jaundice. There were people that smoked weed and did drugs. Um, alcohol was very prominent within that household um everyone socialized together and I was excluded quite quickly um so then I turned to going out and drinking with friends again in the local pub um I was about 17 at this age um and then you know that progressed into here and there there was a little bit of drugs um there'd be like a little bit of base or amphetamine which was disgusting but I didn't know anything about drugs um and and it was a way to escape the grief and the way that I felt, um, you know, losing someone so young and being so close and, you know, his family was my family, but I felt really painful to be in his house and, in and, and, and still up until COVID, I was still going to his house to see his parents, um, with, with my eldest son until I had my youngest son. Um, and it, it was just, it was an escape. Alcohol seemed to be the only place that was felt like home at that stage. Going to the pub felt like home, seeing familiar faces and escaping that hostel. Um, and in my early 20s, well, I was 19 and um, I met my my eldest son. I met his father and um, it was a very toxic, um, drug-fueled fling. Um, but I have my son at 20, 12 days past my 20th birthday. And it's not very... No one knows because I've never spoke about it on social media. His father was never involved, really. Um, my eld- my youngest son, his father and I, we bring the children up together. He's adopted my eldest son, so he is his father. Um, but that that manifested itself into uh, another toxic relationship in my early twenties. I uh, I met this guy because I'd moved from Exmouth in my pregnancy I moved I needed to move away I was surrounded by memories of him I was looking for little bits of him in every man Mm. I was just wanting to see like a little piece of his personality and and sometimes I did sometimes I would see like a little mannerism or something of him in someone else and that was like it sounds so stupid but like that I, I was fixated on just being reminded of him because I didn't realize how much I loved him and, you know, we've only got messages from someone and, um, yeah, I just, it was, it, I became very depressed, but I didn't recognise depression. Um, but then I had this, this fling with 
with this guy and and we had this baby um and that baby definitely saved me a hundred percent I was pregnant and I felt so low I didn't understand that that was like suicidal feelings um and how fortunate I feel that I managed to surpass that on my own um and alcohol was put on the back burner for a long time there were little times when he was born I had a boyfriend a really nice boyfriend at first um before the toxic one came around but I had a nice boyfriend and we had some really nice experiences and alcohol was never really a problem I remember I got always got too pissed at family events or at Christmas but I think that's a bit of social anxiety and I think I understand that now that I'm older but that led on to me meeting this guy that that's a lot of the trauma that I deal with now is because of that relationship um and I went into a childhood state I went into a childhood, and I know that now, I went into a childhood trauma state. I became as vulnerable as I was when I was a child because a lot of his narcissistic tactics were the same of my mother. Mm. Um, and, and he would mention my mother as well because I opened up to him and he would mention it and he'd be like, you're an alcoholic like your mother. And there were drugs were a big part to play in our relationship. We um, Every time I didn't have my eldest son, there would be like um we'd have ecstasy mdma or anything like that but we could get our hands on pills every weekend we'd just be absolutely out of it friday to sunday um and that and it was a very toxic relationship he cheated many times uh and i kept going back because i didn't understand what self-worth meant or because i had no self-worth i'd come from this relationship with this mother that like I said before, she didn't bond with her children. She didn't love them. Emma, I, I have to say that hearing your story already, there, there are lots of events in your life that have made you feel this way already, you know, and the passing of your boyfriend, I could clearly see how upset you got and rightly so. But, you know, these all really contribute to us turning something to, to manage our feelings. So when we start off drinking at an early age, at the time it's, oh, it gave me confidence and it gave me this. But when you explore it later on, you realize actually all these events in our lives have been major jolts to our nervous system, right? And, you know, the passing of your boyfriend is horrific. It's horrendous, you know, and what you said about looking for that a, a tiny piece in each mouth can really understand that. Um, yeah, he, I just, and I still now at 32, I've never met anyone like him. And that's really hard to deal with. Like that's, and that's also becomes like with every failing relationship and, and I've never been lucky in love. I've never, um, I've never had anyone be honest and be true and be faithful or like give me their time. That toxic relationship where, you know, and I feel, I felt guilty for a long time that I allowed that to happen, but that breakup was, I mean, we were together for two and a, two and a half years. That that breakup was uh, actually I compared it at the time to being worse than the death of my boyfriend because he left me out of choice. When my boyfriend passed away, he was taken from me by death. He he loved me. The the boyfriend that that went off with this other woman, and you know, and they're they're they're, they're still together. And, and I'm really and now I've made peace. I let you go. I let you go with love, and I'm and I'm glad that you found that because in small parts, you know, we did have nice times, and I'm glad that he's got that and he's not toxic with someone. I'm glad that he hasn't taken that to his next relationship. And you know, I became a very bitter person. All of these things they ate me up. They don't anymore, and I feel so blessed that I'm not that person because I became I became a production of of my grief but yeah him him leaving out of choice like I felt like I was stabbed with a needle a million times and I was deflating and no one else could see it I listened to sad music to make myself sadder um I just I wanted to live in the pain and I and I thought that li- like going through it and grieving was the best thing to do at that time and although it was hard I put everything else in a box and I do think that's probably why I feel like I did deal with it but it wasn't easy um but it definitely traumatised me. And it's definitely made me walk away at the red first red flag, which is why I'm 32 and struggling to have a relationship because you're never going to have someone that's got no red flags or like you have to work at things and you have to have good communication. And my instinct is to shut down and walk away. Mm. But do you know what I notice is that I'm not sure that you've ever, ever had a relationship with yourself. Right. 
and by stopping drinking yeah. immediately allows you the bandwidth to start to think about who you are and what you want and build up your self-worth and self-esteem. And maybe this is the universe saying to you, do you know what? This is an opportunity for you to, to develop yourself. My sponsor says to me, she said, your, your person is on a train and uh, you keep pressing the button really early and that person is not getting to you. So um, I've taken that a lot on board. And, you know, being with someone that's in recovery or that doesn't drink is, is important to me. Having a similar lifestyle and someone understanding the pain that you go through with addiction mm. is really important. Yeah. And maybe this is an opportunity for you to understand your pain of what you go through, because we just put it down to, oh, my God, I've just spent all my life getting pissed, right? But when you break it down, like you have in this conversation, you re- there are reasons for it. You know, like I always say, um, like your mum struggled to tell you that she loved you. But what was her relationship with her mum like? And when you start to explore these things, there's always reasons, right? So with you, it's like, why are you pressing that button too early? It's because of that almost need to be loved by someone when you need to be loved by you that's that's the key there I would definitely say that this last year despite fighting this addiction I did start that process of getting to know myself and I became comfortable with doing things by myself Mm. so this last I'd say probably the last year like going for weekends away on my own um, and doing stuff like that, like cinema, food. I used to see people in a restaurant and think, oh, they're by themselves. Now I think fair play to you mm. is great because, you know, you've got no one bothering you um, and, and you should be comfortable in your own skin and your own company. And I can say now that I, that I am and sobriety has taken that definitely next level. And and the other thing is as well, right, we always think that we have to be doing things to be comfortable with ourselves, but it's also sitting on your own at home with your thoughts and be comfortable with that is a, the next stage kind of thing, you know, like sitting there and thinking, right, I don't need to preoccupy myself because that's what drinking was doing, right? That was just, you know, removing your thoughts and, and that come in time with you. And this is why sobriety is so brilliant because you just, it carries on giving to you, yeah. you know. And there's the whole emotional sobriety because I, you know, how many days are you now, right? Well done. 57 days is fantastic, right? And what I say to you, it's always up and down, right? Mm -hmm. There's good days, bad days. That's why we say one day at a time. But it's brilliant, honestly. And you're so articulate around it. So I'm grateful for how you talk about your story as well. Now, tell me about um, what led up to you going on married at first sight um so um I live in a in a small town dating is really difficult you know um it's it's easy to make the assumption that all the good ones are married off and they've they found somebody because you know I don't fit in with this modern day of dating with like dating apps and stuff like that it doesn't sit comfortably for me so again where do you go to meet someone you go into the pubs everyone's pissed um, so it's difficult, again, to break away from that in my dating life. And also running a business full time and having two children full time, it was really difficult to manage that time to find somebody. I dated two people in the two years before the show. I dated somebody for four and a half months and I dated someone for five months. It just didn't work out. But both times my children had obviously been involved after one was after like 10 weeks he met the children. The other one was after four months and they were really hurt. They were like, where's so-and-so, you know, where's his children? And that was really difficult. So I felt like, what makes sense? (laughs) Taking myself out of my life, committing myself full time to somebody. So, yeah, let's not forget this person's been matched to me on science and tests and um to my knowledge, he had had the same six months, six months I gave up of my life uh, before this, of um, the same rigorous testing to make sure he was my perfect match. Um, so, you know, I think I'm leaving my children uh, so that I can come back because I was so certain I was going to come back with a partner. 
I was going to come back with this person and be like, don't worry, they're in my life to stay because we've spent 24-7 together for this, what was supposed to be between eight and 10 weeks. And I had a call saying, um, you know, you're so amazing. We're, we're wanting to send you in halfway. And I was like, no, no, no. I want that time with somebody. You can't take it. I need, I'm so serious about this. But little did I know they hadn't actually found my match. <laughs> they wanted me so desperately for television because of the way that I am naturally controversial, Marmite type of person. But they they hadn't found somebody. So they actually matched him to me three weeks before. If I'd known any of this, you can trust that I wouldn't have gone on it. They said, what's your fear? And I was like, that you're going to match me to somebody who doesn't believe in marriage. I'm basing this all on my grandparents. They they met, they had a very short courtship and they were straight into marriage and it worked for them. So, you know, this, although I am the way I am, I, at, at my core, of some very traditional values. I grew up really looking more so at my grandma, who my grandma had passed, my granddad had passed away before I can remember, but the way that she still spoke about him and her respect for him and their marriage, I wanted a piece of that. Who doesn't want a piece of what your grandparents talk about? So, um, so yeah, so I was going on this show. I, you know, I put my all into it. I, um, but I was also struggling with alcohol and with cocaine, which is not public knowledge. Um, it started out as a social thing and it became in lockdown very frequent very and I didn't want to do it anymore I felt sick I didn't I didn't I didn't know how to get past this addiction um you know putting your children to bed and then feeling like you have to indulge in in a drug is is horrific and I know people will pass judgment on that and I'm here to break your judgment because it wasn't a choice addiction at at that stage is not a choice you're not responsible for your addiction you're responsible for your recovery and um and I I couldn't get my head around like where to turn and I before I went on the show I tried turning to the NHS I was turned away um uh, and I fell at the first hurdle and you know I had this phone call with the NHS and they said well at least it hasn't been 20 years at least it's only been a couple um you know we speak to people that have done it every day for 20 years not like you know this is your personal disaster this is your personal pain it was just like justifying it well, at least you're not that bad. At least it's not heroin. At least it's not this. Um, but they didn't have any space for me. So uh, I, I fell at the first hurdle and I didn't realise that there were these, t- and, I, and I didn't search, there were these 12-step programmes um, available. Um, and I thought of Married at First Sight as being like, you know, now I know in recovery, geography will not change your addiction. I treated going away as like, or oh, at least I'll be away from drugs. But as we know, with addiction, swapping one addiction solely for the other, um, alcohol is a huge trigger for me for cocaine. I will never be able to drink again. And I don't have a healthy relationship with alcohol. Completely full stop. Um, so I went on this show. I, again, reverted into that toxic childhood state. I was very vulnerable. I spoke about my fears to people that I felt like I could trust in producers. It turned out my TV husband didn't believe in marriage. I felt devastated, felt heartbroken. And he was like, you know, let's let's stay and create a TV show. And I was like, no, because I, I didn't come for that. I was like, if you don't want to be with me, then tell me or don't want to try with me so I can go home back to my children, which is what I did. I was told to stay, you know, alcohol was free flowing. We didn't have any sort of view on how much we were drinking because it was all put into these decanters. But um, they would stop filming and you know, six bottles of wine being poured into a decanter next to you and it being gone within minutes because everyone's filled up a glass of white and a glass of red, like you were just down in it because of fear that that wine was going to run out. <laughs> mm, yeah, I'll get that. And you're in a traumatic state, your anxiety waiting for those boxes or envelopes or tasks. If you put up all around that table and left us to it, we'd have a fucking lovely time. We would have a great time. But it wasn't like that. It's throwing things in and I understand it's TV. And I, and I understand people are going to look at this and go, you're not as naive as, as you make out. But I believed in the characters that were created. And I certainly believed that the people that had not successful relationships hadn't tried hard enough. I thought you've been matched for a reason and you haven't even looked at why. Mm. You haven't given it a chance. You're not matched for a fucking reason. There's a couple of genuine matches in there. It's the married at first sight lottery. Um, you're matched on 
I said that I needed to work through my red flags. My list of wants and needs to the producers was so small, I thought they couldn't get it wrong. The one thing I said was no steroids or gym heads, and that's exactly what I got. But, you know, being in this traumatic experience and he separated himself from me. So I was waiting all the time for our experiment to start and our marriage to begin. Um, He was with me only on tasks. And, you know, when I said to him, like, if you don't want to try with me, like, let's leave. He'd be like, you're ruining this for me. And I was I was terrified. I was there were things that he did and I was terrified. Uh, And I spoke out about that to producers and it was you're being silly. Um, and you know it later went on to prove in some of his actions and uh, his aggression that that was completely um, the complete right thing opinion for me to base on his behavior because he went on to get a lot worse and nobody was protected Um, I felt yeah I felt really gutted there was the, the best thing about that show was getting in the car to come home mm coming back and and feeling the weight and like just crying in the in the taxi on the way home that like the relief of being out of that toxic nasty environment I wasn't made for it but I didn't go for that it was a very, in my opinion a very well respected um experiment because it was based on the Danish version 10 years ago which is what I watched and I thought well if it ever developed in the future I was so fascinated I'd be very happy to be a part of it. So that's how it came around. And, you know, they wanted me from day one. I can remember my mum being really upset because she was like, you'll get on it. <laughs> you're you're going to be on that show. Um, and I felt so lucky. I can remember a client saying, well, what if they use you in a negative way? And I remember being super offended, like really, if, how dare you insinuate that this show are going to, but they could see, other people could see it. Um, and, you know, I got home on the 13th of May, the day before my 31st birthday. I got home. My friends had, like, my my best friend had left, like, signs in the house saying, like, he's a... <laughs> and flowers. And I had this big welcome home. And the first thing I did was go to the pub, have a drink, and um, there, was, there were drugs around, you know. Alcohol goes hand in hand for me. And now I'm older um, and I've, I've felt strong enough to step into recovery and make that decision for life because it is for life. Um, I now know the science behind cocaine and alcohol together is a substance named called coethylin. Uh, you can't have one without the other. Your brain is triggered. Um, so understanding it on a science point of view, because hair, hairdressing is very science based. I'm very science fascinated. Um, so, uh, understanding addiction based on like the science that goes on in your brain, it makes it a lot easier for me to understand and make peace. I'm the same though, Gemma. I like when I coach clients, I quite often introduce a bit of science, right? Because it, it really helps you understand it. It's fascinating. Um, and I said before, one of my dopamine receptors is 40 as well. And I have low serotonin levels. Right. So one, I'm always seeking that high all the time. And that's why I drank like I did. I was a glugger, continual glugger, and nothing was ever enough. So you say about the wine boxes, I remember drinking a wine box in the back of my van out of the tap at an angle and it's going down my shirt, red wine all over a white shirt. But I was so drunk, I didn't care at the time, you know. So when you came out, right, the drinking continued, right? At what point? did you get to 57 days ago that you just thought I've had enough? I I would say for a long time, I've been thinking it's I've had enough, but my business has suffered. My clientele at work, I'm a hairdresser and I own a salon has suffered. People around me, my children and my friends have suffered Um, in recovery. They say the person you hurt the most is yourself. I didn't hurt myself the most. I hurt other people. I became a liar. I'm not a liar. And I became a liar to cover up my addiction when I told my friends, because I did recovery before on my own for three months. But the mistake that addicts make is thinking, well, I stopped for three months. I reckon I could have a drink now and not pick it up again. Or like I could go back to being a normal drinker. My relationship with alcohol has changed. That first drink is too many and a thousand will never be enough. And um, I, I very quickly got into a very toxic way again. So, um, my business was dramatically going downhill. I wasn't coming to work. I have had um, one or two days off in the last couple of months, genuinely because I hurt my back. Whereas before, 
I was probably at work about 50% of the time I needed to be because I'm the boss and I could do whatever I want. I'd wake up feeling rough, move all my clients to other people and not come to work. And that was getting me depressed as well. You know, I love my work. I love my job. Um, but, you know, things were suffering. My school, my children's attendance at school was suffering. My mental health was just in a massive decline. My life became unmanageable. My life became chaotic and I couldn't do it anymore. I can't do it anymore. But I know that I knew that I needed to to, to abstain from from alcohol now for the rest of my life. And that's a huge thing to someone who uses that as their tool. Mm. So um, I needed to be at a stage where there wasn't another option. And my friend had the children for me and I found the group that I go to and I cried the whole way through that first session. Um, I didn't have a clue what was going on around me, but, you know, I got there. Day by day, you know, meeting by meeting, because you've gone down the AA route, right? So are you actually doing this step program yet? I'm doing a 12-step program um, with a sponsor. I've got a sponsor, amazing sponsor. She's, like, inspirational. She's a speaker. Um, but, yeah, I'm working the 12 steps. Um, we're at the 12 steps to be able to have the tools to deal with your addiction. And, um, and that you know, that doesn't work for everyone. But um, addicts helping other addicts is what keeps you clean. Um, and that's what's working for me. The only times that I've struggled with, like, my thoughts coming back in, because you've got to remember the voice that's telling you this is a good idea is your voice in your head. It will trick you. It will ma- that disease wants you to fail. That disease wants to manifest itself and, it, and it's your voice. So, um, staying at group regularly, I go three times a week. I go to lots of like speaker jams where we hear speakers from all over the world, you know, doing stuff like that is what keeps me the way that I am feeling now. Do you know what fascinates me, right? And I know this is part of the model of uh, AA is when you talk about disease, right? So I love the science of addiction, right? And I fight hard when I hear that word because disease sounds terminal. And in a way, it is because, as you say, one drink's not enough. Like, do you know what I mean? It's that whole thing. We can never drink again. But I frame it more like a mental illness, right? And I'm doing avid research into what is what disease or mental illness right and disease kind of holds me back it's like I haven't got a disease I've got a mental illness that I'm doing my best to manage every day and it and it's funny how we frame things isn't it but it's what works for us you know like that that could work for you and um calling yourself an alcoholic for the rest of your life can work for you where it doesn't work for me recovery works for you where that doesn't work for me so i look at it as discovery because if i'm in recovery for the rest of my of course i'm recovering from the addiction but i it's it's what serves you and this is what's so good now is there's so many different options available for people you know i'm a gray area drinking coach right so there's a big space in between someone who can take or leave drinking where they don't care they never have a drink or they just have a drink at Christmas to someone like me that was waking up on the beach and he's born with my face smashed to pieces while falling over. You know, there's a void in between. And and I find that my clients, they go, do you know what? That feels easier for me to manage knowing I'm not an alcoholic. So it's such an, a great conversation that we all have yeah. and accept each other. This is what I want. I want everyone to accept whatever route we choose is right for them and there's no judgment. And that's what I I want to happen because I know there is in this community certain, I don't know why you do that and I don't know why you do that. And it's wrong because we all need to find our way. Agree? I completely agree. And like you said, it's what works for you. Mm. And it's so personal. And do you know what? As long as we're all respecting each other and respecting each other's process we can continue with sobriety Mm. and i i find i educate myself on other people's stories which is why you doing this podcast is so great because you know um educating myself and also knowing i'm not alone yeah and finding what we talk about in my recovery group is 
Um, and I like that term discovery. I really like that. And I'm, I'm going to look into that a bit more. But Well, discovery for me, it feels like I'm ripping the blinkers off, right? Because when I was drinking, I just looked at the floor. Everything was dark, grey, right? And discovery is like you open the curtains up and the sun's shining and the sky's blue. And it, and it gives me the positive attitude of what is ahead for me. Where And the other thing is as well, Gemma, it's like, we can all hook onto our past, right? And it can weigh us down. But we're in the present now, right? And there are certain elements we have to leave. Like when we talk about regret and shame, right? The things we've done, there are certain things you may need support with. You know, there's certain things with your partner dying. There's certain things with your mum and your biological dad that at some point you will have have to or need or want to get support with right but there are other things that you think do you know what i can't do anything about that you know so what do you do with that do you hold on to it and feel the shame and regret or do you move on and what you can do now is be the example of the better version of you right which is what you're doing and the way you talk is so wonderful i can see for someone who's 32 years old someone who's going to become a real spokesman in this area, to help others, I can really, really hear that in you. Thank you. Um, no, I just, I just think like this community coming together. Like you, you'll never see a community of of, of people, um, especially addicts. You'll never see a group come together quite like people that have struggled with addiction. Like there's, there's nothing else that that is as touching as a group of people that come together like this because. The only person that can understand me really is an addict. Um, so I take a, a great comfort in knowing that, you know, someone hearing my story can um, can relate. And it's about hearing the similarities, not the differences. And yeah, um, that's huge. There might be one thing you say that someone, it's like with these podcasts, right? There'd be one, one piece of what you've said today and people hook onto that and go, oh my God, that is me. Or oh, my God, I really hear what she said there. And these little seeds plant and grow, right? Because I've had people say to me, I heard one of your episodes last year and it planted a seed. And since then, I'm now 15 days sober because it took a year, but I always remember that conversation, you know. And these are why these stories are so important. And and the positivity you say in the groups, in the in this arena of people who have been there, it's what you say. It's it's incredible. It's almost like the unspoken word. You come together and it's almost like the Mason's handshake where you just nod and you go, I get what you're saying. I, I know what you've been through. It's incredible. So, right, you're working hard with your sponsor. How do you see the next few months ahead? Working the steps is really important to me, but also I got my life back. My kids have missed out. I mean, I've still been a, a good mum, but... Uh, how much of a good parent can you be when, you know, you prioritise your addiction over the really important things? I just see myself taking the children to do as much as I can. And for me to see, you know, I bought, an, I used to buy bags of drugs. Now I buy National Trust passes. I see myself doing the National Trust tour um, and just uh, making core cool memories for my children. And I feel so fortunate that that this has come to a head at 32. Yeah, that's amazing. And I love that. I used to buy bags of drugs and now I buy National Trust passes. I was <laughs> talking yesterday about what should I do, National Trust or English Heritage? You know, you do change. <laughs> I've got both. <laughs> yeah. But, you know, recently, this month, I've climbed a mountain in Morocco. I've been on a, a B-Sabre weekend. I've done a 21-mile walk in the Peak District. You know, Life opens up, and this is why I say about discovery, right? Because there, all these options are available for you, right? But when you're in the depths of addiction, you don't see anything past the bottle. You know, you said something really interesting about always looking at the floor. Do you know that's one of the first things I said in my uh, in my group was like a few days into sobriety, I was like, I cried at the clouds. I was like, oh my god, I haven't, I hadn't looked up for years, not really. I've been looking at the floor and now every time I'm in the car with the kids and they say it to me now, actually, they go, look up because there's so much going on above your head. And when you're an addict, yeah, you're you not. Look down. You do. 
there's a great uh, animation on YouTube called um, Nuggets. Um, and it's like Google Nuggets Addiction because Nuggets is a basketball team, right? And it's Nuggets Addiction. And it's this bird that walks along this path and it, and it sees this golden nugget and it looks down at it and then ignores it. But when it gets to the next one, he looks down at it and takes a sip, right? And then it's almost like the, the Red Bull advert where it gives you wings and it flies up and there's wonderful music. It goes to the next one, takes another sip. And gradually throughout this animation, which is five minutes long, each sip comes more addicted to this drug, right? Mm-hmm. And towards the end, his steps slow down. The picture gets darker and darker and darker, and then it just collapses on the floor. And that just epitomizes addiction that w- we just get more and more and more hooked into it. And our life gets smaller and smaller and smaller until we just wither away. And and I share it often with my clients because it's so powerful. And I say, do you want to stop this now? at this part of this animation where you can change it and you can turn everything around in your life. And what you, what you say about being present with your kids, I immediately want to say, and more present with yourself, right? Because that's the magic, right? When you can just wake up, open your eyes and have that five minutes to yourself and feel proud of yourself and think, do you know what? I'm really doing okay here Life is good. I'm a great mum. I feel more positive. I've got more energy. I'm looking great. You know, it's all those things when you stop drinking that that happen pretty quickly. And you're an example, right? 57 days. Look at your life 60 days ago where you were compared to now. That's a couple of months, right? And how much has changed for you? Absolutely. Honestly, like it, it, it is life changing. Sprite is a gift um, to to wake up and feel the world is beautiful rather than feel like the world is grey when it's not. It, it is life changing. Well, I've absolutely loved talking to you, Gemma, and I know you were slightly nervous, but I hope now it's uh, coming towards then to feel happier. No, no, I feel I feel like a weight is lifted. Also talking about it and it's the first time I've spoken about cocaine as part of my addiction and I'm, and I felt comfortable to do that with you because you know it's not it's not a tabloid and it's not a newspaper and it's not it's not going to get twisted and it, and it sends out that positive message for people and I feel really grateful that you asked me to come and speak and and I, I'm, I'm really grateful for your time so thank you oh thank you Gemma and no doubt we'll stay in touch and you. and I think you've been amazing on this interview so I'm really grateful to you as well and keep on doing what you're doing And I will remind you later on, don't forget what I said about you being an amazing ambassador in this arena to help others with this terrible addiction. So thank you so much for joining me. Thank you, Dave. I really hope you enjoyed the show today. Don't forget to subscribe and leave a review. For further support, you can buy my book, One for the Road on Amazon, and you can also follow me on Instagram, at Sober Dave. Please remember to join me for next week's episode. Until then, thanks for listening and have a great week.